And welcome to a very special episode of Swing Thoughts, brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas, the uh, makers of uh, the TaylorMade M1 and M2 drivers and fairway woods, the number one driver in golf. And of course, Glen Karen, which continues to flatter us by putting the Swing Thoughts logo on their scorecards for each and every men's night. And uh, I was playing uh, in a, I hosted a pro-am earlier this week at Glencairn. The golf course is in great shape. We're going to go out early tomorrow. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, apparently uh, I've coerced Tim into uh, playing. I, I was a great conversation. He's like, I don't know if I should, man, because I, I got some stuff, grown-up stuff I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, Tim, forget that. We'll be dead in 30 years. we got to play at 730. You talked me into it. I'm weak. I'm weak. I feel like I was like I'm weak. Like the, the, the street bully going, come on, O'Connor. Come play some golf with me. What are you made of? That's right. O'ConnorGolf.ca. Tim, of course, the uh, mental performance coach at the Glen Abbey Academy. And uh, myself, uh, host of the Humble and Fred show, heard uh, each and every weekday around North America. The award winning. Yes. Uh, North America on Sirius XM. Um, when we first started having lunch together like a year and a half ago and talking about golf and things we had in common, our interest in the mental side of the game, probably very shortly, the name that came up was Fred Shoemaker. Because there's a a group of guys that have read these type of books and not just, you know, listen, there's lots of great stuff out there. Rotella and Carl Morris and uh, all kinds of different versions. But there's a group of people that have read Extraordinary Golf. And, uh, and ever since that conversation, uh, excuse me, the idea of getting Fred on our show was, uh, you know, he was one of our top gets. That was, we've been working towards getting our game ready, getting our reps in, getting our shows in, so we'd be ready for Fred Shoemaker. And I got to tell you, um, by way of introduction, I have, uh, <laughs> I've never looked across the uh, desk in our studio <laughs> and seen more notes in front of uh, you've got four pages of notes for Fred. Three, and, don't exaggerate. Okay. It's only three. But but here's what I would say: I invite you to just do whatever you want, but uh, just be open to this. This, you know, you know, it's like golf. You never know. You're already. This is the first tee, and then you might, you know, you might hit it out of bounds. That's right. I'm not focused on the mechanics of my notes. I'm going to free will here. I'm going to trust my source. Fred's given more than 50,000 lessons and presented his unique instructional instructional approach to over 1,000 programs all over the world from Africa to Japan. As I mentioned, he's written uh, Extraordinary Golf, The Art of the Possible. And what I love is this sentence. Fred is committed to exploring what displaces human beings' ability to perform, learn, and enjoy any endeavor. And let's start there by saying welcome to Swing Thoughts, Fred Shoemaker. Good morning, guys. Uh, it does feel like the first tee, doesn't it? Yeah, but I don't have any nerves. You know, I'm, I'm feeling <laughs> up for this. I'm prepared. I'm ready. I've done my. I've done my work. We're all set to go. Yeah, he's got. And the funny thing is, Fred, looking at his notes, he's he, he's like he's writing like a little school kiddo. Uh, anyways, and then when I get to meet the astronaut, I'm going to ask him, "Can you can you brush your teeth in space?" <laughs> uh, well, I want to listen. The same way. I want to tell I'm you. Excited it really, about meeting Tim again. I got to tell you, it's, it's sincerely, both of us sort of came together over our love of all things, sort of and, and mental and esoteric, and some of the stuff that happens in the game that's beyond just you know positions of a golf swing. And we did, 
one of the things we, again, had in common was we both were big fans of yours, and I was fascinated by Tim's experience, you know, going to meet you and see you. But I don't know. I'm going to let you start, Tim, because obviously you have given some thought, and I, I, we can go in any different way, but what, how would you like to start with the great Fred Shoemaker? Well, I'd like to start with Fred by just kind of, um, you know, what propels you forward, Fred? You've been doing this for a long time, and I'm going to draw on an experience that we had at one of your workshops at Cobble Beach. And it was two days. You invested a lot of time, and we were out on that range, and it was cold and windy. And you stayed there as long as guys would ask questions. And I was just amazed by the amount of energy that you had uh, for that. So what propels you to do the work that you do and, and just give like you give? Well, when you're doing it, it doesn't seem like giving. It seems like just being fascinated. I think I've been fascinated with the learning process and uh, and what interferes with the learning process my whole life. And I think like you guys, aren't you excited when somebody lights up, when somebody sees they have more ability than they previously thought they did? or when they learn something you know that's going to alter their future. I mean, who could not be excited about that? And I feel that we're in this big experiment called golf together, and uh, we're all learning together, and it isn't like there's an end point where somebody gets it and this is it. It's an infinite game, and, uh, and I think what the major thing for me is just curiosity, and I, I enjoy that. I would actually start uh, a little bit before that. I mean, it is, it's interesting to know what propels you, but what I'd like to begin with is let's take, a, let's take it away from golf for a second because I've also been fascinated by the way people learn anything. And, you know, I've thought a lot about it and considered this in my lifetime, how when you're a kid, your ability to learn, whether it's to walk or to ride a bike or to ski or snowboard or golf or any of the things that we all love to do, you're unencumbered by this ego and this sort of consciousness or self-consciousness that we as adults have. And I've said this to several people over my lifetime. I've never met a scratch golfer that didn't start it as a kid. I mean, rarely. You know, like most of the guys that I play with that are good players, if you ask them the questions, their, their history is always the same. You know, my dad took me out, my mom took me out, and pretty soon, before you know it, at 11, 12, and 13, without really much instruction, I just got it. Now, versus the guy that's got to play his corporate scramble next week, he's never played golf, and, you know, it's all, it seems so unlearnable. I want you to talk a little bit about your experience with your fascination in the same area and how that led to your sort of unique way of instructing golf. Well, but I think the challenge is, I mean, when you work with kids, it's almost like there isn't a challenge. Right. Really young kids, before the age of getting concepts and understanding and, and information, seem to be able to take any instruction and convert it into an experience and walk to the first tee with the etching of the experience in their body. As you get older... You take instructions and, and keep them as instruction in your head, and you walk to the first tee with the memory of the instruction, which doesn't make much difference when you play. So there's something about the challenge of having uh, interference. You know, as you said, ego, lapses in concentration, self-doubt, uh, pathetically wanting to be admired by other people, like all of us. Pathetically. Uh, so given that, I find that way more interesting that being able to deal with interference makes not only a difference in golf, but can make a difference in anything. 
mean, the purpose of a game is to teach you something about living or about life. I mean, games were invented for that reason. And if somebody who's used at a corporate outing can walk away from not only a golf lesson but their experience in the course having learned how to concentrate or develop a little more self-trust or learning the difference between being present or being in your head or being able to overcome obstacles with grace and ease, maybe that's way more important than just a kid getting a good golf swing. And that seems way more interesting to me uh, than just seeing how good you can get. Being invested in results, you mean? Well, yeah, but, there's a, but in order to get results, where do you have to pay attention? See, one of the things is to be able to produce a result. Everybody says, I want to be consistent. But no one asks, what's the source of consistency? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get to the next level, but rarely do people say, what do I have to learn or pay attention to or develop to get there? So, you know, the capacity to be able to be present to something for over two, two seconds and have some awareness without a judgment about it is a massive skill in this game. And very few people have that at this moment. You may be to feel where a club head is at the top of a swing and how it starts down and feeling the face of the club it means that you have to give up a lot to give up the hope for performance, the fear that it might turn out, not turn out, and that capacity to be present is the thing we cultivate the most, which is, I think, the essence of self-coaching. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, I mean, listening to what you just said is, again, in itself, sort of the essence of why we do this show and, and why our listeners and, and the people we associate are fascinated with golf as a metaphor for life and also why, you know, Fred's done not just a lot of golf instruction and helped coaches that, you know, help people learn to coach, but also sp- spoken to to corporations because there's so many lessons, even what you just said about learning to concentrate, learning to be present, learning to overcome adversity that have so many great lessons for, you know, keynotes at uh, conferences because, you know, there are a lot of other sports you can use. You know, tennis is a decent one. But there are, there's very few sports like golf that reveal not only character but can, can help you in other aspects of your life. Learning to yeah. breathe through tense moments, learning to not be so concerned with the outcome and more concerned with the process and, and, and investing yourself in, in more sort of organic and helpful behaviors <laughs> than the, you know, some of us that have gone through periods. Oh, where you, mean, you mean like throwing wedges into ponds and that type of thing? <laughs> I, I just want to pause and say, Fred, when I first read your book and I thought, wait a second, I get to throw clubs for, for the good, for good as opposed to evil. Like my, my first takeaway from Extraordinary Golf was I already throw clubs like crazy. I'm the best. <laughs> well, should I put that exercise in context here? Sure. So it's something like this, that human beings have something unique to them. And how do you find that out? How do you find kind of what swing is in your own DNA? Because we're almost always copying somebody, looking for the next formula, whatever's the hot swing tip. So we look, do an exercise in which we, you know, we film people hitting golf balls. And then we film them actually walking at them and say, if, you know, if somebody snitched your wallet and they're running away, throw a club and hit them. Go. Just go. They throw that. And, and, and then we uh, put the films up side by side. 
And a person gets a chance to see themselves. And, you know, I've watched this thousands of times. People say, you know, that when I threw a golf club, there was something innate. My body moved in sync with the club. I had much more power. There was a much more lag. Everything was there. So it starts the conversation that may even sound weird to people listening to this, that maybe the answer isn't outside of yourself. 100%. Maybe there's something you already have that if you could explore that and bring that out, would allow for the kind of consistency and consistent development that people rarely have. And most people say, I don't want to be myself. I suck. I'd like to be somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) And it takes a while before a person realizes that what they have is not only effective, but it's actually the best they can be. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the program, is to be able to have people see how extraordinary able they, extraordinarily able they already are. And that's kind of a shock, because most of the time we think we're just not good enough. Well, let me just go back, because in the book, with the way you present that evidence is interesting, because people look at themselves and their golf swing, which is, you know, for a lot of us, horrifying. Uh, even those of us that think we have a pretty good motion, then you see it on film, you're like, ugh. But then the idea is you took those people who don't like what they look like with a golf club, and all of a sudden they're they're able to, I, I'm not sure the phrase you use, but almost like it's an elegant move. All of a sudden now they have natural ability that they've always had. Yeah. And, they, and it's almost like they look at it with in a, in a curious manner, like, really, am I, am I that um, coordinated? <laughs> yes. Yeah. To, to change the way that you see yourself is a very powerful way to, to start learning anything. The way we see ourselves, you know, it's formed when we're young and we'll go to school. And, you know, if people haven't been in school in 30 years, you ask them, are you an A student or a B student or a C student, people will still categorize themselves. Right. But yet when they can see evidence that their body does move in that fashion, it starts to change the self-image, which is a huge thing. And uh, when that starts, people seem to get like this burst of energy or burst of possibility. This might actually make a difference. And that's a great time to be around people. Yeah, well, one of the things that I found was that um, when you start to imagine that, holy crap, I actually have within me, uh, just as a human being, I have a, a certain amount of brilliance just from the fact I'm a human being. And instead of looking outside of myself for... Um, for all the answers, and I'll tell, try and tell a quick story here uh, to bring it into context for, for for my listeners. So I read Extraordinary Golf about 12 years ago, and I thought, this is pretty nice, but um, it didn't really resonate for me because I thought that one had to hit swing positions and do this, do this, and I went down that, that road of just taking instruction and doing what the experts told me to do, but I never really got any better. And despite having this all this knowledge, and then one summer, I think it was about four years ago, I reread your book, and in the course from June to August, I went from a, a nine handicap factor to a six, and all it was was about being self-aware and just really trusting in my own brilliance, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's kind of the gift, if you will, Fred, that you bring to the world is that people can see, holy crap, I've got amazing stuff within me i just have to be able to just be aware of it be present to it and allow it to come out yes so this notion that you just talked about how awareness develops a person see we tell we tell people in a golf school our intent here is to create an environment without evaluation and without judgment in which it's safe to learn 
Because you realize the only learning environment that makes a difference is when you feel like you're not judged or evaluated. Mm-hmm. And in that environment, it's possible to experience things you've never experienced before. And those things are going to, are going to teach you or train you. Not so much what the coaches says, but the ability to experience more. See, the, the reason, let's say I've played for a long time, but the reason I play better than most of the students who come at this moment is I experience things they don't experience. That's all. I mean, if, if you guys were to look at a radio board, you would see things I wouldn't see, how to, how to set it up. So the capacity to sense things, like where's the club face? Can I experience swing play? What makes a difference in solid contact? How, what, uh, my body and club being in sync or not in sync? All of those things are not a province of a few. They're just an experience that a person can pay attention to if, in fact, they're not so worried about, can I hit this shot well and look good? Mm-hmm. So the capacity for sometimes to let go of our obsession for performance and to be experienced in our body, feeling the club head, sensing the target, is what makes people develop. It's not information. It's not even understanding. It's the ability to be present to things that you have never been present to before. And that's the trick is the environment. See, when a person leaves, well, the intent is they can create that environment for themselves on a driving range or for mm-hmm. themselves on a golf course. It's all about self-coaching. If a person had developed self-coaching in a golf school, we win, and if we don't, we lose. I don't care how well they hit it. And because I know their capacity to coach themselves is what propels them forward. And we've done you know, over 1,000 golf schools, so we have a good sense of what matters and what doesn't matter. And I thought it was a lot of snappy stuff I would say that would matter when we first started, and I'm realizing it's not what you say. It's what after you say something, does a person have more, I don't know what it is, uh, grit to pay attention to something that can make a difference for themselves. Um, I just have a, a sort of a one-and-a-half-parter question. Um, okay. <laughs> in other sports, now again, I, I've been lucky in my life. I've gotten to experience a lot of different things in a learning capacity, whether it was learning to snowboard or I taught myself to ride a unicycle. And wow. because I decided one day, I wonder if I could do that. Now, when you learn some sports like snowboarding, skiing, unicycling, there, there are very painful. <laughs> you get a lot of painful feedback. You fall yeah. and it hurts, and you think, you know, I really would rather not do that too much. Yeah. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, riding a unicycle took me six weeks to finally do it. And the neighborhood kids used to come and watch me because I would get in my driveway. I did, I'd get set up on it. I'd let go, and then I would fall, and they would think that was funny as the old man kept falling. But it's some. My point is, there's a very concrete, that being the driveway feedback. In golf, it's kind of a nebulous thing. Which is getting to my question. Because the feedback is, yes, the ball went left, right, or to my target, but in terms of your physical feedback, the only pain you feel when is, a, is a mental pain of embarrassment, humiliation, ego. So, therefore, when you talk about creating an environment where a person can you know, self-coach, it seems that's such an esoteric concept to the, all, all the other people that have golf schools that you, know, you leave knowing the positions you're supposed to be in your backswing. So this is all by way of saying you know, your way of your method of instruction, you know, obviously we think it's great, but it's not in the sort of mainstream of golf instruction yes. because of the nebulous nature of our game. Yes, but could you imagine trying to change something you haven't experienced? Just hear, hear the, the insanity of that. Somebody, you, somebody walks by you and says to you, hey, you know, your club face is open to the top and you're coming over. So 
see, hear that. You have no experience that you did that. And then you try to take your club down from the inside and get the face more squared up. But you know, I mean, it's like what I always see is it goes back exactly to the way it was. So in the absence of accurate feedback, no one improves. And in the presence of it, everyone makes a difference. But suppose you get up to the top of the swing, you like you were doing skateboarding, and if your club face is open, you get a shock. Yes. <laughs> it would have probably made a difference, even maybe yep. a light shock. But in, in, the, in the moment of swinging, can you begin to distinguish what's actually happening? See, I had a golf lesson. In, you ever remember a guy named Tim Galway? Oh, yeah. I read his book. Yeah, yeah. Inner game of tennis, inner game yep. of golf. Great. I had a golf fans. lesson from him in 1976. And he says, hey, what do you want? I said, you know, I do this thing at the top of my swing. I, my fingers come off the club and so forth. And, and, he, and he was a tennis guy. And I was desperate. And he said to me a question that was changed basically the way I do my coaching. He says, how do you know you do it? And I said, well, my divots are there. I've seen it on videos, even the old videos. And my ball flight changes. He said, do you actually experience in the moment that it's happening that your three fingers on your right hand come off the club. And I had to say, no, I have never experienced. I have tried to change it constantly in my life, but I have never experienced it. And he said something remarkable. Would you ever consider not fixing it and actually experiencing it? It was like fingernails on a blackboard, man. I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I said, okay. So I started hitting golf balls, and he said, are you holding your fingers on? He said, I said, yeah. He said, stop it. Just let them do what they want to do. It was about 15 minutes into this lesson that my fingers, I actually felt them leave the golf club for the first time in over, I would say, 500,000 swings. I mean, I played over 250 golf tournaments before I was 21 and did that. So, and in the moment they started to come off, he said, just let them do what they're doing. I, be I began to experience what musculature lifted them off, what brought them back, how the club face shaft moved, and the club face changed. And it was about 45 minutes of that lesson, my fingers stopped moving, and they never have moved once since. I'd done that for 20-some years. And I thought, and I walked away from this lesson going, what the heck was that? What does it mean? Just paying attention could make a difference for me. And uh, those, see, I was at that time a young golf pro, and I thought stuff like this never happened in my golf lessons. But it was something wonderful to how awareness is developmental and, in fact, curative. You cannot make a difference in something if it's in your blind spot. It owns you. It runs you. And until it gets the light of day where you can actually experience it, it will run you. And, and most people have some pretty large blind spots in their swings, you know, usually at the start of a downswing. And, and my, my original question, it's impossible to deal with something or make a difference in something if it's outside of your awareness. So how did you, do, I'm sorry, do you want to, no, how did you, from that lesson, is that where Extraordinary Golf, is that sort of the seed of the it way is. you decided to start Perfect. teaching people? Yes, well, I just noticed, I said, okay, what did this guy have? First, he created an environment that was safe for me to explore something I considered weird. I, didn't, I wasn't fearful about hitting a good shot in front of a coach. He was as interested as I was. And then he knew, you know, this body's gone through a million years of evolution. 
unless you, I guess you're a creationist, and it's at least 6,000, okay? <laughs> he's gone through a, That's right. a lot of evolution. So between 6,000 and a million years, you know, yeah. somewhere in that estimation. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it keeps my blood temperature and, and red blood cells dying. Oh, it's amazing, saline level. It's doing 100 things right now. And was I arrogant enough to think hmm. that my downswing gets on playing because I say, pull the club down? It's like a cretin talking to a genius. I said, well, how does this happen then? How does this all work? And I realized the body's language is not English, or I've taught in Japan or Spain or anywhere. It's not that. The body's language is awareness, or presence, if you want to say that, another way of saying it. And if a person could actually experience what's going on, the body has this marvelous way of doing it, making a difference in it. And so I thought, well, wait a second. He just directed my attention to something without a big judgment about it. He didn't, he didn't even know what was right or wrong. I mean, this guy's a tennis guy. Yeah. And so when I got back and started doing golf lessons, instead of being the answer man and the source of all knowledge and Mr. Yapper, I decided to maybe ask people questions. What did you experience there? When did that happen? Could you feel that one more than that one? And stuff started to happen that had never happened before. It's called Beginnings of Self-Coaching and the capacity to be able to perform under pressure because you actually experience things and you can deal with them. And, and then I began to realize that, man, human beings are really capable. Even people who think they're just non-athletic, it's amazing what they can actually do. And then I began to get if, if, if that's really true, then the way we're going about this, in fact, that we think that we have the knowledge and we're going to shove it into them is one aspect that I had done. Another way is just wait a second. How about creating an environment which they could lead it out of themselves or with a coach who could guide that? And that would be way more fun and interesting. And when you talk about, you know, I've, I've done thousands of lessons and thousands of golf schools, and I never find it boring. I find the capacity to learn endlessly fascinating. And uh, I think that's the fun part. I mean, what would it be like to go to work and never feel like you're at work? You're just engaged in this big experiment. And uh, you could learn as much that day uh, than any day. I mean, I, I'm playing the best golf of my life, personally. And it's not because of any big revelations. I just have a little more awareness this year than I did last year. Mm-hmm. And I feel a little safer on a golf course when someone says, oh, hey, that's that guy from Extraordinary Golf. Watch him hit it. I don't feel like I have to somehow prove my identity by making sure of something. I can be pre- present to what I'm doing. Right. Uh, we want to let everyone know we're talking to Fred Shoemaker in case you know your attention span is waned in the last 20 minutes. ExtraordinaryGolf.com. And uh, Tim O'Connor, what's your question? So, well, well, Fred, um, some of the things you've talked about, things like awareness, um, you know, not identifying your, your personality with your, your self-worth with your golf game, these are things that uh, people who listen to our show have heard for a while. What they've also heard is us rail against this golf culture. And golf culture today is largely, the message people take from that is that I'm broken, I need to be fixed, I need to get an expert, and I need to, to download all their information through the lesson or through, through uh, the Internet or whatnot. And there's, so really, like so much of what you talk about is just, it, it makes so much sense, but it goes against the grain of this culture that we're in. You know, um, yeah. Of, of everything, we have to go to the expert. In large, in a large measure, I think people give their own power away. Can you just speak about how, really, you you are operating? Sometimes I think like um, against this tsunami of golf culture in terms of 
folks, you've got yeah. amazing gifts. Go with those. Well, Tim, I, I think that everybody's doing the best they can, given the experience they've had in life. So I, I, there's something like all golf teachers are doing absolutely the best they can. But there are sometimes, you, you know, you've had transformative experiences in your life. And things that have, your life was going one way, and then it shifted. Now, it's just that we've all had different experiences, that's all. Now, given the fact that we grow up inside of a teaching culture, and someone says that if people have answers for you and the best thing to do is listen, it's naturally we'll think that comes into golf. You know, nobody grows up and has their teachers say, you know, have, you have everything you need. You are whole, you complete, you're complete. You may be lacking some awareness at the moment, you know, like, a, like an acorn who develops into an oak tree, but all it needs is the environment. You know, a little water, a little soil, maybe a fence that block the wind or something like that. But we're all taught that somehow we're lacking something. So, of course, it grows into that. No issue at all. I mean, you can see it in the way we go about competing. I mean, if the British Open was a perfect example of that. I mean, I think it was just so wonderful that most people think the, the benefits of competition happen when it's over. What people will say about you, how you'll be noticed, uh, how your, your ego will either be bashed or, in, or uh, raised up. But suppose we looked even at competition differently. Suppose Tim and you and I were in a competition, and we pretend for the next four hours to be adversaries. But what I'm really saying to you, Tim, is that if you could give me everything you got, give me the best you got, and I'll give you the best I got, because during this competition we will grow and develop, and we may reach places we have never reached before. So you and I have this unspoken conspiracy to excel together. But when it's over... It's really over. I mean, who gives a darn? It's just, but if we've learned how to learn and being able to focus more and all of that, we will have reached things that are useful to us. Now, the problem is people think there's a winner and a loser. Yes. <laughs> and, oh, Phil Mickelson didn't win. It was, he, but wouldn't it be great if he had said to, he said, and Heinrich Stenson had said, you know, because of how we were today, I got to play a game and see a thing about myself that I never would have seen unless, unless Phil played this well, because he allowed something for me. I saw him as the person who really developed me. It's an honor to have be in this competition. But, you know, when it's over, it doesn't matter. There's nothing useful after that other than this whole notion of being praised or applauded, which in the end, always in my world, comes to emptiness because you're going to need more of it and something's wrong if you don't get it and you strive for it. But the real essence of it, see, great competitors in the last nine holes of a tournament or a round of golf get more present and, and love that like a drug. And poor competitors get more in their head wondering what people will say about it afterwards or how they'll be known, and they can't play a lick usually at that time. So... You have things, but we both have things in life that make us, allow us to be present to it, whether it's doing a crossword puzzle or checkers or golf. But if, if you could be, are more present in a round of golf than you are in the rest of your life, you will love the game. You'll just be swept away by it. And if golf sticks you so deeply in your head, you're in you know, all the drama of it, you yeah. probably won't play yeah. that much. Um, and, and lots of us get caught up in the... 
you know, uh, sort of slings and arrows of the, the game, the vagaries of the game from day to day, and it's all because of our ego. But I, I want to get back to what you were talking about. Uh, by the way, I agree with you, say, about uh, Stenson and, and Mickelson. You know, it, they, were, they kept referencing the, the duel in the... Duel in the sun. Duel yeah. in the sun. And, and I, honestly, no offense to Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson, this was at a different level. This was at a next-level adventure, I think. And, I, you know, again, I... You know, no, taking nothing away from 1977, but this was the 2016, you know, the fitness. Uber. The, the, these, these guys were at a different level. Anyway, what I want to say, though, is when you talk about the way instruction has been meted out over the years and how it's such a strange concept, the way that you present instruction or golf development. And part of that is the brainwashing of the culture, the, not only the golf culture, but the way our culture works. That is to say, someone hears about golf or our golf, uh, you know, golfers, you know, like have an idea. Hey, this new teacher, Sean Foley or this guy, that guy. And we think if we could only get a lesson with David Ledbetter, then we'd be cured. But the actual fact is David Ledbetter can't offload enough information to make you hit it like Nick Faldo did. That the answer somehow is inside of you. And yet, you know, your, you know, end of the golf pool is a fairly, you know, you're a fairly unique island unto yourself and the rest of the culture goes on offloading information track man and and instruction that way so i guess not really much of a question though but do you agree with the brainwashing of it the fact that no one's been able to cure anyone's slice in 50 years (laughs) well it's like the common cold i guess you know we still have colds now i i know but first of all there's a certain wisdom in david ledbetter yeah it's nothing and the just the capacity for someone to make a difference in another person, and he has with some. But are we smart enough to know how that person's body works? I mean, what, how their body turns, where the club should be at the top, where they should be flat or upright. See, a method, no matter how you cut it, will never allow a person freedom. You know, people ask for consistency when they come. They ask for a sense of freedom, and they ask for self-coaching. And as far as I can see, as long as you're following a method, there will never be freedom because the method will always be in your head to something to compare and try to copy. And when you say to someone, you know, maybe you can just start being yourself, that sounds too Californian for them to hold, get their arms around. But there's a whole way of having person discover their own personal fundamentals. They can discover how their body works. It's almost like they can be in a... In a to begin to see how it all works for them. And I think that's what the unique part is, is that, you know, there's a way a person can discover their own stance, what works for them, and it's, it's unique to them. How your body turns, where your club needs to be for you to have the best place to come down from, what your tempo is. All of that can you can be in a process to discover for yourself. And I think that's uh, the, we, in school when we grow up, the teacher is saying, I have an answer for you. And if you get this answer, everything will be okay. So consequently, we go to golf, and the teacher says, I have an answer for you, and we think we'll be okay. But even though that hasn't proven out, we still keep thinking there are better answers. Mm-hmm. That someone has the right one, the smart one, some planet somewhere, people are hitting it down the middle on the green. And <laughs> That's right. No, but what you said about, you know, if you follow a method, you know, uh, let's say your teacher's an early risk cock you know, bring it back a certain way, then you stop thinking about, you know, how do I hit a golf ball or where does, where does this golf ball need to go? And then you start playing a game called, am I doing it the way I was, am I doing this thing right? 
Yes. Versus am I, am I playing a game? Am I propelling a, uh, a thing down a fairway or toward a target? And then you start thinking, well, my, my teacher's a real you know, late risk hawk guy, whatever that is, or a hinge or a, 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 you know, a slide. Then you start playing that game, which is different than the game we're playing. Yeah, but wouldn't it be great if we could do that in other things? I mean, thinking of singing or dancing, if we just learn how to let it go, whatever we have, rather than just trying to do it right or follow that method. I don't think it's uncommon from anything else in life. Um, so the, the, the nature of what you're talking about, having a person being able to be themselves and discover their own way, is not that, of course, not that prevalent. However, it's highly effective. This is not something that's, oh, just fun and nice to do. We're trying to say this is the most effective way for people to learn and be able just to play golf, to play, to be able to shape shots, create the shots that the architect asks for, rather than going over there and say, what do I have to remember? Mm-hmm. If what, see, the nature of things is says, if I think the right thoughts, I will hit the right shots. And as far as I can tell, that's completely the opposite of what makes a difference. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because so often we'll find ourselves in a round of golf. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but I've actually stood over shots and for a second forgotten what my swing thought was for the day. <laughs> and I've, I've had to step away because I'm like, part of it is just driving me crazy. Like, what was that? Do you actually get your little book out? And no, no, it? but it's like I'll be standing over there going, I, I know I was working on something. I just can't remember what it was. And because I'm almost, and I know other people I can, can relate to this, it's almost like I can't take the club back unless I remember what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> exactly. And yet I've also had rounds where I'll be like goofing around and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hit a little sling hook off that bunker, and lo and behold, I do. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fairly uh, accomplished player, but I can just say that to myself without thinking, what do I need to do in my backswing to create that, that, that shot? I just have to think about it. The, the permission. Yeah, but the nature of the mind is that it loves to think, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. If you hit that slingshot, uh, that sling, and it doesn't turn off, turn out, the mind will say, see, that doesn't work. You don't know what you're doing. You're out of control. So you better read Golf and Digest. To, and you, and to be able to disregard that piece of machinery right. that's pretty much yapping 24-7 is a pretty big thing to learn. Well, it's like the Buddhists call it the, uh, the monkey mind, the chatter that yeah. goes on. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's funny because uh, I've, been, I've been reading a lot about that lately. And one of the things I've read recently is that uh, the simplest way to, it's, and it seems absurdly simple, but it's, it works, is that one of the ways that Buddhists will, will calm themselves is just to pay attention to your breathing. Uh-huh. And, and that's it. And, and the thing is, you think, well, God, it's got to be more than that. Shouldn't I be thinking about uh, eternity? No. If, if all you, and and I, I, this guy, it's funny. I saw this clip on YouTube. It was a monk, and he was saying, you know, if you want to calm the monkey mind, just for a moment, pay attention to something else like your breathing. And by doing that, you stop paying attention to the fact that that low sling hook you meant to hit off the bunker didn't turn out. Well, in golf, What's real is the ball is real. You can touch it. Club's real. Your body's real. You can touch that. And the environment. So the counterpart to pay attention to your breathing in golf is to be with something which is real, to pay attention to it. But most people are with things just with thoughts, with fantasies. They're real thoughts, but nonetheless, they have no substance. They're over a shot thinking, now you've got to make sure you stay down and follow through or whatever they're thinking. But the capacity to be with reality is a large deal. See, that's part of the training. When the mind comes up and says, don't hit it right, 
If you haven't committed to something bigger than that, you'll be taken away by that, by the whole what would happen if I hit it right and well, how would that look. But if you could say when the mind says don't hit it right, you know, thanks for sharing that mind. <laughs> My intention is to, have to be with a target and let it go or something. So the co- great players, I've noticed, have a, co- have a comeback capacity. Where the mind, you know, players on the tour have the same whacked out mind like you and I have. Absolutely. No difference. <clears throat> the only difference is, in the moment that the mind chirps something, they've developed the capacity to let it alone and come back to their intent. So I, I, there was this guy uh, who was uh, played in the Ryder Cup. So he tells me this story. This is about a 30-second story. I'll make it fast. Yeah, no, look, no, Fred, we got all it. the time in the world, yeah. so okay. take your time. He, 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 this is a couple weeks after the Ryder Cup, <clears throat> and I'm hanging out with him. He says, you know, I made the winning putt in the Ryder Cup, but I'm going to tell you the story. I played in a tournament two weeks before, and I'm scared to death on every shot. So I go, oh, my God, this is not a good prelude to the Ryder Cup. So he's playing in the Ryder Cup. This is for the European side. He's coming down 18. And he, he knows his point matters. It's going to make the difference. He's playing Jim Furyk. This is a guy named Paul McGinley. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he, uh, he says, I'm, the story so freaks me out that all I could do is pay attention to my feet on the ground. Just pay attention. So he misses the green to the left. He chips it up to 12 feet. And he's got this putt for the Ryder Cup victory. And he said, I got over the putt. And he's a spot putter. And he says, I literally saw the ball. I saw my spot. And I saw the hole. He said, the putter seemed like it took itself back. I felt the solid hit. I saw my ball roll over the spot I intended. Can you imagine that? He has that kind of presence. Then he says, then it fell into the hole. I don't remember anything after that. In your video, it shows him throwing his putter and running and stuff. Now, he says, I've got to tell you the reason I'm telling you this story. And it's the story, by the way, he told to uh, to the Ryder Cup team two years ago when he was captain. He says, real freedom? I mean, not the kind of funky freedom people talk about, but real freedom is commitment. When you're really committed to something, there's no second thoughts. There's no back door. There's no, like, rational hesitation just parades around like this is something you should do. He said, when you're really committed, like I was in that putt, that's all there was. And he says, it's the first time in my life the story got so big that I basically panicked into freedom. (laughs) And... uh, and he said, uh, most people want freedom, but don't very, reali- very few realize that commitment is the access to it. Committed to, I'm committed to being with the clubhead. I'm committed to being with the target. Committed to letting go. Because without that, the mind always can come up and say, yeah, but watch out for this, and what would you think people think about that? So anyway, I just That's thought great, that was an interesting deal. That is a great story, and it's something that I wanted to explore because, Fred, in your in your video, which I think is must viewing, uh, I think I probably watched it over twenty. times. Are you times. talking about the video at extraordinarygolf.com forward slash video? <laughs> yeah, that one. Well, the one you could access through that URL. Okay, but um, anyways, the one of the key words, Fred, that that uh, you come up with a lot, you repeat, is freedom. And that is a very unique concept in, in golf. And I'll give you an example of how I worked with a student um, just in the past week uh, in terms of trying to extricate him from golf hell. Because our listeners have heard golf hell has been a, uh, a theme here for a while of golfers, such as my esteemed colleague sitting across I went through a really I went through a dark period there in June for a few weeks, Fred. <laughs> which, by the way, goes to show you that no matter how steeped you are in this stuff, like I went completely off the grid. 
Anyways, back well, to you, Tim. Well, maybe he gets you back to purgatory. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I sort of worked my way out of it. So my, my student, he's, he's 18 years old, um, a scratch player, but he just he had just kind of lost it and it was just couldn't find anything. And he's looking at his golf swing, and I said, you want to try something radical? And he goes, okay. I said, why don't you just go out and enjoy your golf swing and your putting oh. stroke? Why don't you just swing and enjoy it. And there was just silence on the line. He goes, what? And I said, yeah, it's a radical notion. Just just for one day, can you just enjoy your stroke and your swing? And he said, well, ignore the bad ones. I said, just enjoy it. And really, it was just a radical notion for him. But it's when we come back to this freedom, it's like when Fred, uh, oh, no, he's Fred, he's Howard, talked about you just... Let it go, no thought. It's amazing how your body can, can figure it out. So, Yes. <clears throat> the freedom isn't chaos. This isn't this wild man going like crazy. There's a, there's a natural body structure in which freedom is allowed for. And so when it usually starts out, when people say, I want to be free, first they start out with this crazy wild hit. That's fine. And after a while, that tones down to something that really feels great. I mean, I don't think you can repeat something. Or, or uh, be consistent with something you don't like. Mm. If you ask most people, do you like your own golf swing? Most people say no. Not only do I not like how it looks, I don't like how it feels. Well, I was going to say, if you asked 100 golfers at any given time, you know, how they're playing, the preponderance of them, would, the responses would be, oh, I'm, I'm uh, hitting it good, but I'm putting bad. My chipping's awful. I can't get out of a bunker. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pull hooking. All they would, most golfers in a response, it's always the state of chaotic anxiety yeah. that we play this game in. Very yeah. few people, I mean, it's also human nature. You know, most people you ask, how you doing, they... It's almost like a reaction. Oh, I'm doing fine. But in actual fact, they don't feel like they're doing fine. Or I play golf, but I'm not very good. Right. They, but there's, always, there's very few golfers who'll say, you know, how are you playing? And they would say, I'm playing with a sense of freedom and uh, connectedness and to the, the it, joy. The joy. Uh, no matter what I shoot, I feel fine. I'm not ego-driven. I don't care what I shoot on. And no one says that. But the fact so it'd is... it would be unfair, wouldn't it? Right. But, you know, it's like I am, uh, one of the notes I put down and I wanted to throw to you is, in actual fact, our natural state, if we would just let it, is a state of, you know, calmness. That's my dog, by the way. Hey, buddy. Is he dreaming? Is no, he's, he's, dreaming? Uh, he's having a, an attack. But the, the point is, there's, you know, our, our natural state as human beings is to be joyful and playful and free. There's yeah. a Japanese proverb, every yielding to anxiety is a step away from the natural heart of man. Mm-hmm. And golf is filled with all these anxieties, which are really unnatural. But we think, I guess my, the biggest point I'm trying to make here is that has become, the, the, certainly is in, in the game of golf, that's natural to us. To always be on the cusp of, my swing is broken, I'm horrible, golf is you know, not as much fun as I'd like it to be. In actual fact, that's not a natural state for us. Well, I got a big insight in this about 20 years ago. There was a kid who came uh, who was just unlike anyone I'd ever met. He was about 16. And no matter what happened, he created an empowering context, if you will, or an empowering interpretation about what happened. He'd hit a ball to the right, way right. He'd say, you know, I didn't feel what happened, but if I did, I know it would make a difference. Or he'd top a shot and say, 
you know, I lifted up and I felt that. That was cool. So no matter what happened, he created an empowering context. Now, the kid went from shooting 90 to shooting, you know, in the low 70s within about 18 months, which is unusual. And I thought, wait a second here, something to this kid. So this is, you know, 20 years of an experiment from Scotty, who is the name of this kid, to now. So I realized that, see if this makes any sense, guys, there is no is world. It's all an interpretation, Mm -hmm. all made up. See, Howard and Tim, you are making up the world according to how your culture and your parents and, you know, your media, it all made up, you make it up like that way. We keep thinking the way I see the world is the way it is, and I will fight anyone who tells me differently. Right. We're always so surprised that people vote for that candidate or choose that car or that pair of clothes or whatever. So if, if what this kid made, how he was, what I saw is that the immense, unbelievable power of language, internal language, external language, body language, imagery is language, written word is language. Now, I'm, now you're in a golf school. You send people out to do an exercise. A guy hits... Ten three woods comes back and I say, "Well, how was it?" He goes, "I sucked." I said, "Okay." And he said, "I just mishit him." I got it. And I said, "Is that the only way you can see?" It? He goes, "Yeah, that's the truth." So I said, "Okay, can I be you for a second? Play act to you." Mm-hmm. He says, "Sure." He says, "I'm." I say, "Hi, my name. I'll call him Jim." My name's Jim. I had ten three woods. Uh, I, I mishit him. I I went into resignation and lost energy. Is that true? He goes. <laughs> And I say, is there any other interpretation you can have of this? He goes, I don't know what you mean. I said, can I be you again? He goes, yep. I said, okay, I'm Jim. Um, I just took on solid hit for the first time. It's immensely challenging. And if I could get through it, I see it could change everything. Is that true? He goes, yeah. I said, hi, I'm Jim. Uh, I was, did the best I could given the awareness that I had at that moment. Is that true? He goes, Yeah. I said, hi, I'm Jim. You know, in challenges, mishits happen in the beginning, and I'm kind of mishitting it. It's no big deal. So I gave him five interpretations, all of which he called authentically true, and all of which empowered him more than his interpretation. So I'm saying now, not only do you have to work on golf swings, you have to take a look at the the language that enters people's heads. I'm not talking about positive thinking. Positive Mm -hmm. thinking is altering the facts. Like, I'm just a good putter. I'm a good putter, even if I've missed ten in a row. What I'm talking about is context, or what you could call interpretation, alters the way the facts hit you. You know, I miss hit ten balls, and I'm up to something big here. This is what's happening. So, and I really say that if the world is just an all-interpretation, and we're making it up all the time, literally everyone is interpreting things different than other people, then the game would be, how could I interpret this that gives me life, energy, vitality, joy, all the things you were just talking about? It's all made up. You know, Mother Teresa had the same challenge as you and I did, as far as I can tell from reading her biography. But she could, you know what, one thing about, I, I read about her, she could not hit a draw. Like to save her life, like not even. They say, hey, Teresa, it's a dog leg right. Time, when she gets to a dog leg right to left, she goes, I don't know. I'm going to hit three wood because I can turn it over easier. I'll just lay up to the Rather corner it. of the dog leg. She was a good putter. In the she was a great star. putter. She All right, Mother Teresa could putt, but could not yes. hit the draw. She hit and a lot. Yet, of, she hit a lot of blocks. Anyway, I'm sorry, Fred. I just no, wanted to inject good. some nonsense into this. The people have some people have a way of interpreting them that gives them what we're at that right. For. Yeah. There is no way that life is going to turn out. It's, 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 it's not going to turn out the way you think it's supposed to turn out every moment. 
you know, golf mishits, and most professionals, the mishit ratio is 85%, because they have a finer level, what they consider mishit and hit. An amateur, the mishit radius is about 60%. So if you said to a beginner, hey, the rest of your life, welcome to golf, the rest of your life you're going to mishit about 60% of your shots at best. Welcome to play. Here we go. Right. Most people say, well, well that, I don't that, want to do that. That's setting a different paradigm for the for the long term if you took somebody on day one of golf and you said by the way this is kind of the reality of the game you might hit a couple of great shots around but not always most of your gaming life in this game is going to be variations on a theme of not perfect and now go play but it won't you could also say this may have nothing to do with the joy of your game it's right. part of it right. like you realize that most of the days in wherever you live are either cold or hot. Not many are 72 degrees with five mile an hour breeze. No, exactly. But yet somehow or other it doesn't interfere with our enjoyment of the day. Because if you accept that that's what's happening, you might be able to have this incredible learning relationship or a great relationship to failing that doesn't allow to this whole, you know, swan song of emotions. Right. So, Fred, one of the things that we talk about you mentioned the word failing. A lot of people are struggle with the yips, or or uh, Dick's will call it the heebie-jeebies. And you know, we've been talking about things like you know freedom and playing with joy. But there's people who seem afflicted, and there's no fun in the game, and people want to quit the game. How yeah. do you, and and I've heard you talk about that. Uh, I, I watched all the pieces from the Golf Channel that you did, and, and you said I'm that sorry. I think in a way that you said that <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, 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 can we delve into that? Not now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, you know, I, I saw no. one of the clips, and I thought, you know, this is not the place for Fred Shoemaker. Yeah, but anyways, you said something along the lines that the the, the body never does a stupid thing. So. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to hear your thoughts on dealing with yips and the body does, doesn't do a stupid thing. Can you just... Yeah, okay. Now, this, this is going to... If you have got to put on at least our own thinking hatch for this, it's not an easy subject. So it starts with this, is that you can't solve a problem with the same mind that looks at it from the, from the same aspect. You have to look at it from a different point of view. So here's the point of view that I think can make a difference for people with the yips. And thousands of people have it, and many people quit the game because of it. The yips are not a problem. They're a solution. Okay, I'll explain. That's radical. I know, but we've now done nine workshops with people with the yips, and this is not just a guy in a bar talking. We had there's some experience behind it. Okay. So, it's like this. A guy has a 35-foot chip shot. And what happens... Unknown to him, his body is only going to give him 20 feet of energy. Hmm. So, and he's swinging, his body gives him 20 feet of energy. It's, and at some level, see, yips only happen to pretty good players, and they only happen to people who have played a while. What I'm saying, yips only happen to people who have a sense of where the target is. New players just hit the ball short. Right. As soon as you get where the target is, the body has that as a prime directive, get the ball to the target. So you take it back with not enough body energy. And in the middle of your swing, as you start down, your right forearm realizes it's been called into action. So you do this stabby right forearm motion. Now, you hate it, feels crappy, could skull it, but it's the only possible way it could get to a target. 
your body's being brilliant and it's not being stupid. Or, or if you get down even a little bit lower and your body slows down, then all you have is the wrist fumble, you know, the little flippy wristy thing, right. which is a form of focal dystonia. And the ball now gets scuttled across the green. You go, oh, my God. But you have to sense that it's the only way, given the directive to get it there to the target, that all the energy you had left. Mm-hmm. Almost all, you know, you take a person, you say, do your practice stroke with someone with the yips. Let's say it's a 15-foot putt. When they do a practice stroke, most people have a practice stroke that will go about seven feet. So when you put a ball in front of them, the body knows not to use the practice stroke. It only goes seven feet, so they add something. And the only thing possible to add is either a forearm thrust or a wrist flip. And that's called the yips for most people. So very few people say, wait a second. If my, if my, uh, if my yips are a solution, let me look before it. What happens before it that makes the yips a brilliant thing to do? So it's usually saying, can I begin to find out how much energy my body needs? See, we take people and oftentimes literally move their shoulders and torso for a putt. And almost always when you do that, a yipper will say, are you kidding me? That would go way by. But when you use enough body, it, it no longer the, the hands and forearms no longer have a reason to do what they do. You take away the reason for it. See, the, as I said, you know, we talked about the body doesn't do stupid things. Well, I was going to say, too, stupid thing. the same thing applies to people that are having uh, chipping difficulties. They're Generally, they just don't have enough energy. The ball's constantly short because they're worried about hitting it too far. And it will go by the hole. For some reason, and the it fear... stupid. Well, I don't... You know, it's... Yeah, possibly. But I have always wondered why there's a fear of being, you know, past the hole on a short shot, but no fear of being short of it. Well, one of the reasons is almost no one looks past the hole. So when you look from, the, from your ball to the hole, it's the known area. And you can't get people to go into an unknown without fear. If you have a person see the hole as the center of an area, generally people will get the ball to the hole in putting and chipping. If the hole is the last point of the known, people will stay in what they know. And it's, you know, we do this exercise, we have people close their eyes, take the pin out of the hole, and then Mm -hmm. walk to the hole and see if they can put the putter in the hole. You know, 99% of the time people walk short. Right. So it isn't a problem with fear of, of the of trying to, you know, not using enough. The problem is they're using exactly the amount that's within their realm of comfort. You expand the comfort and the swing expands. See, the, the solution to things is almost never in the area we think they are. It mm-hmm. is. You have to kind of look from different points of view and from a different context. The context or the interpretation matters. It's decisive. The content is almost irrelevant. Yeah, it's, it's almost like beyond the whole, it's almost like uh, Columbus and viewing like the part of the unknown world. The world would just drop away. We're just not unaware of it. And what I wanted to connect that to was something, Fred, that you talk about is that um, we respond to the world correlate to how we conceive of it. So you talked about context. And, I, and I'd just like you to speak to that a little bit in terms of how we can get on a tee and feel some anxiousness. We see OB oh. there, or we see um, a pond there, and how people respond. So just... Yes. Okay. This is another one of those big subjects. Uh, I'll try to make it as brief as I can. That the way we act has nothing to do with our internal experience. All neuroscience is showing that now. 
what you uh, what your, your your thoughts that come through, your emotions that come through, uh, your physical sensations do not dictate how we act. How we act is correlate to how the world occurs for us. How this situation is interpreted by me. So people who it's like this, you're practicing letting go in the dry range, letting go in the dry range. You've been doing it for a month. You feel really good about it. You step to the first tee. You turn your head down the fairway, and it looks a little scary. It looks tight. No matter what you do, the tight of the way the world occurring will supersede your commitment to letting go, and you have no choice about it. It's just what happens. So you swing this stabby swing, and you wonder, where did the letting go come? Mm-hmm. So the, our actions, I mean, you, you, let's suppose you're driving into a parking lot, you're the last one to come in, somebody cuts you off, takes your parking space, jumps out of the car, they have tattoos on, they're 20 years old. Most people think, oh, it's a rude thing to do. But then if I tell you this guy's bringing insulin to his mother in the kitchen, it's a whole different interpretation. So how it occurs for you, you know, people's curve for themselves is non-athletic. They will be non-athletic. If practice occurs for you is difficult, you'll create it as difficult. So how it occurs for you is how one acts. Every scientific experiment is now showing that a scientist can predict what you're going to choose anywhere between two and seven seconds before you choose it, before you even have a clue that you're going to choose it. There's something in your brain that lights up, which is concurrent with how it's occurring for you. See, if, practice, if, you, if you step to the first tee and all of a sudden it, it looks in such a way, like you look down there and say, hey, this is what I came for. I love to play. Let me play. This is my house. This is my domain. Let me hit it. Of course you'll let it go. Mm-hmm. Any damn fool would. It's just the way it works. And if it occurs for you, please get it in the fairway so it almost like they know <laughs> That's you. Right. Then, well, it'll, then it'll tighten up. Well, we all know golfers so, that don't like it when uh, they're on a par three, say, and another group comes up behind, and it's not their group. And now they've got not only their own group they have to hit a, you know, over a pond or whatever. Now they've got another group of people that they don't yes. know as well. And what are they going to think of me? But suppose this. Suppose, you know, I looked at that, and I said, you know, this is the best thing I do in life. Yeah. I don't do anything as well as I play golf. So how about... It's like a singer wanting to sing or a dancer wanting to dance. I get a chance to express myself with a bigger audience. Hey, let's play. That's great. Um, another interpretation, right? Fred Shoemaker, uh, we're going to spend another uh, five or six minutes, so let's uh, start to uh, think about ways to finish this 18. And, and, and by, by way of saying, like, there's not enough time. We, um, we'd love to have you back again now that we've you know, pestered you for an hour, if that's possible. Well, uh, these ho- are good questions, guys. They're making all of us think, and I like that. Well, I was going to say, like hopefully you're like so enamored with our <laughs> our intellect and acumen that you're thinking, why wouldn't I talk to these guys all the time? Well, you've you got to admit, it's, it's, you, we have enough time to explore things rather than the one minute and 28 seconds of the right. call channel. Um, there's a guy, we're talking about that now. There's, there's a guy I'm going to throw. This is, my la- this is the last thing I'm going to throw at you that uh, I think you might interest, be interested in. There's a guy named Alan Carr. He passed away now. But a book he wrote has sold six or seven million copies around the world, and he's, and he's helped millions of people quit smoking because one day he had this radical idea that, counter to the culture of smoking, which says that smoking cig- or quitting smoking cigarettes is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. And, of course, if you approach it that way, it's going to be. 
which mm-hmm. is why so many people find it hard to quit. And he had this revelation, this epiphany that maybe if it wasn't the hardest thing to do in life, maybe we approach it like, you know, there's an easy way to do it. So the short of it is, um, Fred, he wrote a book called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And 10 years ago, I read the book, Stop Smoking, because somewhere in the 70 pages, I was convinced that, you know what? With the right attitude, this isn't the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And just that change of, you know, the way, kind of what you're saying about golf, changing the way you look at any given situation can all of a sudden make it radically different. And all comes down to what you said about the way you show up in the world is the way you show up. Mm-hmm. But you can change that. Well, that's one of the great things about human beings. We can reinterpret things in such a way that makes life work. We will never get everything we want. But we can certainly, you know, enjoy what we get. I mean, suffering really, really is optional. Yeah. Yeah. That's really funny. That's I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm sorry Mr. Carr died because I was hoping he'd write Alan Carr's easy way to stop shanking. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's one of those other things. It's, shank is just an experience. If you can feel how you do it, it's easy to stop it. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to try to. Once you sense how it happens. And most people, remember, whatever is a blind spot for a person owns you. Your blind spots own you and run you. If in the top of a backswing a club moves four inches out and comes down in a shank and a person doesn't experience that, well, you can do all the really snappy things, but it still could shank every once in a while. But once a person gets where the club is moving, it's easy. I mean, if I had to hit the ball with my hand, I could hit it pretty much in the center every time. When the club face is felt more like your hand, shanking's a non-issue. Yeah, well... I'm going to go in a different, because Shanky could sometimes be a, a, a spiritual experience, <laughs> which, I've, which Howard has I've observed witnessed. in me. He's witnessed Oh, it's me. very spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. I know he was taking the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> but, but, Fred, one of the things that I just maybe, in a, in a way to wrap up some of this, I think some of the key things uh, that I've got from from listening to you and going to your workshops and, and talking to coaches who have been in your schools and members is that what they, again, to go to this word of freedom and that people find that they're kind of unburdened by all these images they've had of themselves, all these must-dos, these, these rules, these belief systems they've had about themselves. And it's really just kind of like it frees them up and it's almost like, wow, it's joyful. and. Yeah. It's a wonderful place to be as opposed to this prison of I'm broken, I need to get fixed, and um, that, that's what I got on that. Yeah, what you're talking about is kind of freedom of mind, the capacity to really get that I'm doing the best I can. And there's, see, when you stand behind in a golf lesson, there's a lot of ways to see it. They could say they're broken, needs to be fixed, there's something wrong here. But we train our coaches is to, when you're standing there observing a student, can you be inside of a question? I wonder what awareness is missing, the presence of which would make a difference. That's all. And you look at the person, you say, try again, you can ask them, can you feel that? Do you sense that? So it's just a question of they're not experiencing something. Nobody got short sheeted in the feel aspect of life. They just sometimes haven't put their attention to a place that matters. I mean, if I was to learn how to fly a plane, I would have to pay attention to things that matter there. And most people, when they're hitting golf balls, are not paying attention to things that matters. They're so deeply stuck in their heads 
that it's hard to actually experience anything other than please let me hit it. <laughs> um, Fred, I have to interrupt you there because people that know our show know that I, I quit golf about, you know, 16 years ago or so because I wanted to learn something else. And what I went and did is I took my OCD golf obsessive practice mentality and I learned to fly. And uh-huh. I always tell people that, you know, flying is a uh, golf's way tougher than flying because if you make a mistake in flying, you just die. In golf, if you make a mistake, <laughs> your friends will bug you about it for the rest of your life. <laughs> but I, I'm going to tell you, I, almost every pilot that I've ever met that golfed before they flew picked yeah. it up quicker because of the hand. I'm gonna, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but because of the hand-eye coordination part of flying, there's a mental part, but there's a, you know, there's a real feel part to it. That a lot of guys that pick it up easily, as I did, were golfers first. Yeah, like baseball players do really well, and so do hockey players. Football players generally suck. And I thought basketball players were great until I saw Dr. J play, and then I realized maybe they're not. Charles Barkley, oh my God. Um, yeah. Listen, we want to thank you so much, and I hope that you've enjoyed this. I know it, I you, have, guys. it's great Thanks. to have a, sort of a long-form discussion, and uh, you know, we will obviously ask you again, and at some point that will be annoying. But until that point, um, we would have you back uh, whenever you would uh, give us a couple minutes of your time. Tim and Howard, thank you. Uh, to be continued, okay? All right, Fred Shoemaker, and uh, look him up on the Internet. If you, next time we could talk about the Golf Channel thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, have a look at some of Fred's stuff. And as, uh, I, as I did, it's kind of a gateway to the rest of this stuff, which is extraordinary golf, the art of the possible, and there's some follow-ups to that. But uh, highly recommended here on Swing Thoughts. Thanks, Fred. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank Fred, you. There's Fred Shoemaker. I just wanted to... Uh, just to have a couple seconds for us to wrap up. That was ridiculous. <laughs> like the guys, the guys, well, seriously, we should just go down there and live in his a hut near his compound. May I touch the hem of your garment? <laughs> That's right. You know, I'll be walking around barefooted with, you know, we'll be like shave Shaolin my, monks. Shave my head. Um, Fred, what would you, can we get you some water? Can we bathe in the water? Anyway. Yeah, that guy's got it going on. Um, Very good. Try and grab the pebble. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We want to thank our uh, sponsors, uh, TaylorMade Adidas, the uh, number one driver in golf. I got to tell you, though, um, I have had a M2 three-wood for a couple months, and I haven't used it. Because I was hitting it on the range, and I hit it too far. I know that sounds asinine. <laughs> I did. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. But I've recently started using it, and I found out something I didn't know. Did you know this? That the, I did not know this. That the, for, for the, the USGA, RNA, whatever, the rules of the, those people have uh, restrictions for the coefficient, uh, whatever, for drivers. Core. Core. They don't have the same for three woods. Seriously. This is what I was told. I did not know that. Neither did I. Wow. Now, it could be BS because, you know, it was told to me by another golfer. Uh, actually, no, I thought I heard that on the broadcast. Somehow or another, I just found this out recently. So there's no restriction on the springiness of a face on a three-wood. I got to tell you, I hit that M2 three-wood the other day. I don't even want to tell you how far I went. It was stupid. Because I, I knew I hit it well, but, you know, we're having a little bit of a drought here in southern Ontario and baked out fairways, went whatever. Went forever. Uh, so make but sure you... Can you... Also, but you can also work a three-wood. Like, we remember talking about this. I remember saying that I was having trouble drawing it. I since solved that, but... So if you got an M2 three-wood that goes forever, and you can work that puppy, you could draw that? Holy crap. That you know, I was, talking to this, I was talking to a guy I really respect, former uh, tour player, and a guy around our age, and he said, I don't know why you, know, you amateurs are so enamored with drawing drivers. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Like, 
and that's why lots of guys, Henrik Stenson aside, who hits that three wood, you know, three twenty. But that's why those guys on tour will take a three wood because they it's easier to turn over. So the holy grail of drawing your driver, it really is, you know, it's um, what is that a fool's errand because it's tough to do. Exactly. So get the M two, uh, and um, I know a friend of mine just got fit for M two irons. Just loves them. Anyway, that's that plug. Thanks to Glenn Karen. O'ConnorGolf.ca. That's how you get a hold of Timmy. You can always uh, book in a lesson with him, as uh, many, many fine players have and benefited from. And take a listen to Humble and Fred, where you actually they refer to Swing Thoughts every once in a while. And, it's and very nice. Make sure you're not listening to it with your children, because unless you want them to learn some very, very horrible words. <laughs> Um, we'll be back uh, it's a growing experience. Uh, next week. And uh, Fred Shoemaker, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. A band is